Welcome to Equimanagement's podcast, Disease Du Jour, where each podcast will delve into the research and current best practices for a variety of equine health problems with industry experts. I'm your host, Kimberly Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. Today's guest is Dr. Craig Barnett, director of the Equine Veterinary Professional Services segment at Merck Animal Health. And we're going to talk about the Merck Equine Respiratory Biosurveillance Program, which is celebrating its 11th anniversary in 2019. Dr. Barnett, who has been a horse owner and equine enthusiast his entire life, received his DVM from the University of Missouri, and after graduation, owned an equine and small animal veterinary practice in Spring Hill, Kansas. After a few years, he began his career as an equine technical services veterinarian in the pharmaceutical industry. Barnett is the director of the Equine Veterinary Professional Services segment at Merck Animal Health. He's also involved in a number of equine industry boards and committees, including the Kansas Horse Council Board of Directors, Equine Land Conservation Resource Board of Directors, American Horse Council Health and Regulatory Committee, and many other uh, things that he does and has done for the American Association of Equine Practitioners, including being the chair of the AAEP Serology Task Force. Dr. Barnett boards several retired horses on his ranch in Paola, Kansas, and he enjoys driving his team of horses and trail riding. Well, thank you, Dr. Barnett, for joining us on Disease Du Jour to talk about the Merck Animal Health Equine Respiratory Biosurveillance Program and what it means to veterinarians, researchers, and the horse industry. So, uh, thank you, Kim. I very, very much appreciate the opportunity to uh, visit with you and talk about this program that we've really enjoyed, uh, that I really enjoy being a part of. I want to start with a quote from Dr. Nicola Perstela, who leads the University of California Davis Equine Infectious Disease Research Laboratory, where program samples are submitted and analyzed. He said, When we started this program, we had no idea how much we would gain over this period. The study has increased awareness of respiratory pathogens in the veterinary community, provided invaluable epidemiological information pertaining to common and less characterized respiratory pathogens, and provided sequencing of equine influenza virus isolates to monitor how the virus is changing in the field and to evaluate and improve the efficacy of vaccines. What Merck Animal Health has done is and will remain an unmatched service to the entire U.S. equine community. So let's start today, Dr. Barnett, with talking about the history of the Merck Animal Health Respiratory Biosurveillance Program. Why was it started and what is its purpose? So it's a kind of a long story, but actually I give credit to, uh, to Dr. Paul Lund, who's currently the Dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine at North Carolina State University. At, that, at the time we started discussion about this study, Dr. Lund was at uh, Colorado State University. He and I started these discussions back in about 2003, and we were just discussing that despite the fact that infections of the upper respiratory tract are one of the most common medical entities encountered by veterinarians, there was really limited surveillance data available, and we felt there was a need within the industry to obtain more surveillance data to get a better understanding of the prevalence and epidemiology of the pathogens causing these respiratory diseases. So the initial discussions kind of started in 2003. We actually kicked off what I would call phase one of the study 
in 2004 where we actually went and sampled horses at equine events, uh, two shows and two sales. And uh, these were random samplings from normal horses at these events. And uh, looking at EHV1, EHV4, and equine influenza virus. And that, that, the results from that study, which I'll again call phase one, was uh, presented in 2006 at AAP and then published in the, uh, and published in the journal, uh, I believe it was a equine veterinarian, sorry, I'm sorry, journal of equine veterinarian science in 2013. So that was kind of phase one. Then in, in 2007, we got a group of veterinarians together along with Dr. Paul Lund and Dr. Josie Trout-Dargas from CSU. And we started just brainstorming uh, what to do to, to initiate uh, the biosurveillance study as we know it today. And, and then a little bit later in August of 2007, I started discussions with Dr. Nicola Persterla, who you referred to earlier, and his PCR lab was <clears throat> up and running and seemed to be very well suited to fulfill uh, the needs of the study as we had it outlined and to meet our objectives. And, uh, Dr. Pastura was a strong, <clears throat> had a strong interest uh, in collaborating with us on this study and he provided some very valuable input uh, with the study design and implementation and, and he was just <clears throat> really a very important component of this, of this study and his input, expertise and assistance has been unprecedented and very, very valuable. So the study as we know it today actually started in March of 2008. And when we started the study, our primary goals were to provide a diagnostic tool to assist veterinarians with accurate and timely uh, diagnosis uh, during acute respiratory disease outbreaks uh, to help them optimize treatment uh, biosecurity, quarantine, and vaccination strategies. Uh, also, we want to provide the horse industry with a better understanding of prevalence and epidemiology of respiratory pathogens. Uh, we also want to be able to identify and monitor current circulating strains of respiratory pathogens. And also, uh, our fourth uh, goal was to evaluate the efficacy of current vaccination protocols and vaccines. That's kind of a history of the history of the program going back to 2003 when Dr. Lund and myself started. Came, uh, he actually came up with the I give him credit for having the idea and coming up with uh, the initial thoughts for that. We talked about it, and continued to work on it, and then the meeting in 2007 with, uh, with a group of veterinarians, and then we linked in Dr. Sterling and kicked off the study as it is today in March of 2008. Well, that's a very interesting uh, history on there, but let's uh, let's talk about how you get uh, veterinarians involved and a little of maybe about case selection criteria because we're talking about cases coming from all over the country. Yeah, so it's a, a nationwide, U.S. nationwide study. Uh, initially, clinics will network with either Merck Animal Health uh, equine reps or Merck Animal Health and Professional Service Veterinarians to discuss logistics of the study and discuss uh, getting enrolled as a participating clinic. Once the veterinarians are enrolled in the study, uh, we send them kits, uh, and those kits include lab submission forms, a questionnaire, 
nasal swabs to obtain uh, nasal samples, and also viral transport media and shipping labels to allow them to ship the samples to the UC Davis lab that Dr. Nicola Persterla runs. Uh, to qualify for sample submissions, the horse must have an acute onset of infectious of respiratory disease, uh, temperature of 101.5 or greater, and also either depression, nasal discharge, or coughing. So acute disease, a fever of 101.5 or greater, and then one or more of the other signs, depression, nasal discharge, or coughing. And to optimize the diagnostic results, it's really critical that we limit samples to symptomatic horses uh, that have a fever and the clinical signs described, and also ones that are acute. In other words, less than 10 days uh, this horse has been ill. And the, the, the sooner the ons to the onset of clinical signs that we can get the sample, the better, because uh, as disease progresses, the, the horses shed less virus or less bacteria, as the case may be in some situations. And so we want to catch them in the very early acute stage so we can have a better chance of getting a meaningful and accurate diagnosis. So once that sample is obtained, the veterinarian obtains that, the nasal swab and a purple top blood sample. <clears throat> they send that, they ship it overnight uh, to the real-time PCR research and diagnostic core facility at UC Davis. Uh, the lab that Dr. Nicola Pristerno oversees. Uh, his lab manager there is Samantha Barnum. I give credit to her as well. Her and Dr. Pristerno both are really good about getting these samples and getting them run and getting the results back to the veterinarian very quickly. So uh, it's been a wonderful working relationship with those individuals and with the other uh, people at the lab there at UC Davis. Uh, and they, their involvement, again, has been a key component to the success of this program. So once their lab receives the, the sample, uh, they run the test and they'll report the results back to the veterinarian within 24 hours from the time they receive the sample. So it's really a quick turnaround time. For example, if a veterinarian sees a horse on Monday and, and collects the sample and they ship the sample out, the lab will receive it on Tuesday and the vet will have results no later than Wednesday. So it's a pretty quick, uh, quick turnaround time. And these samples, so when the lab gets the samples, then they'll be testing via PCR, polymerase chain reaction, real-time PCR for eight different pathogens. Primary pathogens we test for HV1, EHV4, equine influenza virus, and streptococcus equi, subspecies equi, or strangles. And then in 2012, so that, from 2008 to 2012, we tested for those four primary pathogens. In 2012, we started testing for uh, equine rhinitisa and BP viruses. Uh, we also started testing for equine herpes virus 2 and equine herpes virus 5 in 2012, but currently we're just gathering data on those two pathogens uh, because uh, even though these pathogens are ubiquitous in the horse population, and there's, they have a speculative role as a primary pathogen for respiratory disease in the horse. At the present time, we really don't know, really don't have a good feel for the significance of those two pathogens. So we're collecting the data, just not reporting it. So that's kind of how the veterinarians get involved in, in the case selection criteria and how they can submit the samples overnight to the lab and they'll get the lab results back. Just to give you a kind of a 
quick snapshot overview of the data uh, from March of 2008 through March of 2019, so 11 years now. Uh, we have had approximately 8,500 samples that have been submitted. 35% uh, of the positive samples were EHV4. 32% of them were equine influenza virus. 24% were, were strangles, and 9% uh, were equine herpes virus 1. Uh, and uh, the other thing is when the veterinarians get these, so the veterinarian will get the report back to them as soon as the results are obtained from the lab. And then the veterinarian also has, if they would like, uh, the equine veterinary professional services team at, at Merck, as well as Dr. Nicola Pastrella, we're, we're all available to discuss findings and discuss these cases uh, with veterinarians if they so desire. So that kind of gives an overview of the study and just a brief snapshot of what we've found with the results to date with EHV4 being the number one pathogen followed closely by influenza. And those two pathogens will kind of go back and forth. One month we'll see a lot of herpes 4 and the next month or two we may see a lot of influenza. And uh, there's some seasonality with those two pathogens as well, which, which I can discuss later if you'd like. And uh, while that is a, an amazing amount of information and samples that are all in one laboratory to be able to look at, and we know how important some of these are to the, the health not only of the horses but to the industry as a whole to keep horse movement going and, and to protect our horses, especially when they gather for events. Um, what do you think some of the highlights for the veterinary community have been from this uh, this biosurveillance program? I mean, that's a lot of information. Yeah, we, and sometimes it's even hard for us that are directly involved in it to keep our keep our arms wrapped around all the information and all the data that we're getting in, but, um, you know, because it's an overwhelming database that we now have with 8,500 samples over an 11-year period of time. And we've been fortunate to, to get some of that data and analyze it and actually publish it and present it. We've had five peer-reviewed publications uh, from this study, uh, as well as 10 abstracts and, and numerous presentations at national and international uh, conferences. So, so it's, it's been nice to be able to share these findings uh, as best as we can. Uh, and the studies, you mentioned highlights, the studies actually kind of re uh, opened the door to some interesting uh, information, some of it new. Um, through the study, we've obtained a greater understanding of a demographic and signal one parameters associated with infectious upper respiratory disease in the horse. Uh, and actually some, some new insights and findings. For example, uh, with the HV4, uh, it's still predominantly a young horse disease, weanlings and yearlings, uh, but it can and it does occur in mature horses to a much higher degree than what we initially thought. So we're kind of rethinking equine herpes virus for it. Again, although it's primarily a weanling and yearling disease, uh, we are seeing it rather frequently in adult horses as well. Strangles, again, traditionally considered to be a primary young horse disease, is actually the most common diagnosed infectious sub-respiratory disease in horses six to 10 years of age. Uh, disease still tends to be a lot more severe in young horses, uh, 
but we are seeing it again in the, in the older age group. <clears throat> the highest instance of disease with, with strangles is, is late spring and early summer. Uh, we've also, uh, talking about strangles, we've also identified a propensity, which is kind of interesting, identified a propensity to have a co-infection with strangles and equine herpes virus 4. Uh, <clears throat> this co-infection uh, uh, with equine herpes virus 4 was, was kind of new information, and the cause of this is, is not yet known. Why are we seeing that? We don't really know. Are, are both agents circulating together? Or does one infection, or infection with one, put the horse at risk for infection with the other? Or does infection with strangles make the horse more likely to recrudesce and shed equine herpes virus 4? Uh, we don't know those answers, but we do know that we see herpes virus 4 and strangles as co-infections. Uh, not, not frequently, but not infrequently. <clears throat> the other thing is that uh, in the study, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, equine herpes virus 4 and equine influenza virus continue to be the two most prevalent pathogens associated with infectious upper respiratory disease, and that's been the case throughout the 11 years of the study. Uh, like, somewhat like equine herpes virus 4, equine influenza virus no longer considered a primary, uh, primarily a young horse disease. Uh, once thought to be primarily a disease of young horses, that being horses less than five years of age, we have seen a significant amount of influenza virus and influenza outbreaks in, older, in the older horse population. And not only are we seeing it influenza now more in older horses, but we've also seen a lot of influenza in well-vaccinated horses. Um, influenza outbreaks in well-vaccinated horses are generally indicative of significant antigenic drift and inadequate protection from current vaccines. And through phylogenetic analysis and sequencing of isolates from this study, we have confirmed that indeed significant antigenic drift has, has occurred. Um, we first started seeing this in about 2012 and 2013. We started seeing a whole lot of influenza in 2012 and the first part of 2013. In 2012, we saw, I believe it was 16 reported outbreaks in nine states. states. And then in 2013, we saw over 40, I'm sorry, reported outbreaks from eight states. Um, and one of these that was, uh, drew a lot of interest, that drew a lot of interest was uh, an outbreak of the HITS show, the Horses in the Sun show, in Ocala, Florida in 2013. Uh, the, initial, the initial quarantine during that outbreak was established due to a positive equine herpes virus one case, but then it quickly became apparent through PCR testing as part of the, this biosurveillance study, the Merck biosurveillance study, that many horses were impacted and infected with equine influenza virus. So <clears throat> that was a pretty big outbreak. And the, another interesting thing there is that highlighted again the incidence of influenza virus in well-vaccinated horses because essentially all the horses at that show, uh, per show requirements, had to have had an influenza vaccination within the six months prior to arriving at the show. So we got a lot of influenza in well-vaccinated horses. We did, so this in, uh, you know, was of, of great interest to us because we knew they were well-vaccinated horses. So we actually sequenced that isolate, which we referred to as 4 and 13, and we revealed that indeed uh, 
that was significant different from that virus than, than the viruses contained currently in, in vaccines. And that helped explain the extent and severity of that outbreak. So we did that. That was our first confirmation through the biosurveillance study of significant antigenic drift and significant disease in, well in a well-vaccinated group of horses. I might also add, <clears throat> because it's this next comment is not only applicable to the Ocala outbreak, but several other influence outbreaks. So during that Ocala horses in the sun outbreak, uh, several several hundred hundred asymptomatic horses on the premises were vaccinated with fluvir, the intranasal fluvir vaccine, to help control the outbreak. And fluvir was used during that outbreak and has been used during several outbreaks because of its rapid onset of immunity and mode of action. And practice of administering fluvir to these asymptomatic horses during an outbreak really seems to help control the spread of disease and has been used again during many, many different outbreaks. So that 2013, I'm sorry, 2012 and 2013 is when we first saw the, a lot of influenza. Uh, but I can tell you that very, the most recent data we have from the last quarter of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019 we have seen another significant spike in influenza cases. <clears throat> if you recall overall, in the 11 year period, I believe it was 30, 34% were influenza positive cases. If we look back the most recent six months data, last quarter of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019, we saw 48% of the cases were, were influenza virus. And if we look at just in the first quarter of 2019, January through March of 2019, we really saw a lot of influenza with 60% of our positive cases submitted during that three-month period of time were influenza. So we're still seeing a lot of influenza out there and also a lot of equine herpes virus 4, but influenza the last six months has really hit hard. And I might add that Another interesting finding and highlight in this study has been the, the what we've identified as a seasonality of these different pathogens. With equine herpes virus 4, we're seeing it most commonly in fall and early winter. Um, with influenza, we see it more in winter and early spring. Um, so a lot of our influenza cases, we'll start seeing them, like in 2013, we started seeing them in October, November. And they carry through until March. And again, this year, as I said, January, February, and March, we saw really a big increase in influenza. So to me, that that brings up a really interesting practical question is that if we're giving horses influenza vaccinations in the spring, in March or April, we might need to be rethinking that because we might be a little behind the time period of the year when we're seeing most influenza cases, and that is winter and very, very early spring uh, before January, February, and March. So an interesting piece of information with regards to seasonality that may uh, become practical as far as rethinking when we're giving influenza spring vaccinations. Now that is very interesting and, and something that could really change you know, how well the vaccines 
you know, are protecting if they're given in enough time. We know that we know that the flu is drifting. It it um, something that you know I'm really glad that you guys are are keeping on top of. Um, but with the the advent of learning about the seasonality, you know, what would maybe be your advice to practitioners when they're thinking about, especially a lot of these horses that travel uh, down south for for different kinds of competitions during the winter? Yeah, I think it's just going to be really important to, you know, uh, make sure that those horses are current on vaccinations, um, especially influenza. Um, and, uh, you know, the flu of our intranasal vaccine, it's still, it's still been, you know, it's been a very, very good vaccine and has withstand the test of time and, and a lot of challenge, challenge virus in the field and, so it's been a great vaccine. We did, I just might mention, we did take that Florida 13 isolate and incorporate it into the Merck Prestige line of vaccines. So we did take that Florida 13 isolate that we had seen was quite different from from previous strains and, and put it in, a, in the vaccine. But, so I think just vaccinating those horses is, is key. But I think we always, I think as veterinarians, I think we, and horse owners, we, got, we have to think we have to keep in mind that Vaccination alone just won't do the trick. I think if any, I think one of the key things we've learned from this biosurveillance study is that is that biosecurity is really really important, and it's we have to do biosecurity in conjunction with vaccination to really do our horses the best we can to try to help prevent infectious diseases in these horses. And so I think you know biosecurity is so very important, and I think this study and the results and the different outbreaks have really helped increase awareness to both veterinarians and horse owners as to the need for not only vaccination but also practicing good biosecurity. And I'm going to uh, switch off of flu for just a minute to talk about, we've talked about EHV4 quite a bit. Um, Veterinarians and horse owners are very worried about EHV1. We know there's not a vaccine that is labeled to confer uh, protection against the neurologic form of EHV1, but there is thought that it offers some protection. What has the biosurveillance um, shown? I realize this is a respiratory program that it's studying, but have you looked at any of... um, the HV ones and is is that something that we're seeing more of? You know, that's a that's a good question, Kim. We're so we're seeing so yeah, herpes is a herpes virus, equine herpes virus, as as herpes virus is in all species. I mean, it's a challenging virus, right? So, um, you know, so we we still rec- highly recommend vaccinating horses that are at risk. Uh, with equine herpes virus one and equine herpes virus four vaccines, but I think it's critical that we recognize uh, uh, the limited uh, limitations of vaccination. We know that vaccination against herpes virus will attenuate clinical signs if the horse is exposed to the virus, and we know that vaccinated horses, when they are exposed, they shed less virus. So epidemiologically, it makes sense to vaccinate against equine herpes virus. But I, on, the, on the flip side, I think we have to realize and recognize that uh, due to the nature of that virus, there are limitations with vaccination. Um, we don't see a, 
uh, you know, and that part of that is that horses are infected very early in life uh, with equine herpes virus, and in many many situations, many times, that virus established, establishes latency in the horse. So we're vaccinating a horse that's already infected as a latent infection, and it's just really good. It's really difficult to keep good immunity in that situation. But vaccination does help because, again, if they are exposed, vaccinated horses will, have attenuate, will get attenuation of clinical signs and also decreased viral shedding. We have not seen a whole lot of equine herpes virus one as far as infectious sub-respiratory disease in the horses in this study. For the most time apart, equine herpes virus one is, is uh, usually uh, very mild in nature and often self-limiting. Um, we've only, overall, we've only seen about 9% incidence of equine herpes virus 1 as a respiratory disease in this biosurveillance study. And some of that, many of, the, many of those submissions were actually early on during the study and, and part of uh, submissions from neurological outbreaks. So the number, the true number with equine herpes virus 1 and respiratory disease is probably even much lower than 9% because, again, some of those were neurological cases. Uh, we do see a lot of equine herpes virus 4, uh, and although we're uh, primarily a young horse disease, less than one year of age, we are seeing it, as I stated earlier, more frequently in the older horse population. So, yeah, right now, herpes virus 1, as far as a respiratory disease, uh, rather mild and self-limiting, and we don't see a lot of it, but herpes virus 4, we, we do see a lot of it as well as the influenza. And I think we can thank Dr. Nat White and the Equine Disease Communication Center with, you know, keeping some of these diseases in the forefront of not only veterinarians' minds, but in, in horse owners, too. And we're seeing strangles. I mean, everybody hates to see strangles. You know, most horses are not going to die from strangles, but, man, it can put a kink in your operations when somebody finds out you've got strangles or there's strangles at an event or... You know, there's there's strangles on the property next door or whatever. It it just makes it difficult for veterinarians and horse owners to uh, to keep things contained. And there's been some recent research on how long, you know, this, that uh, this virus can live in the environment even in winter. Um, so right. with strangles, what are you seeing? Is it are we seeing more of it, or are we just learning more about more cases? You know, I think it's a combination thereof. So if we look overall, strangles, strep equine was the third most common pathogen in this in our study. Uh, but it, but it, it varies. January through March of this last year, it actually jumped up there and was, it was the number two pathogen that we isolated right behind influenza. Um, you know, I, and, and another thing, speaking of strangles, made me, made me think of and so yeah, I'm sorry. We, so we know we have we know we have asymptomatic carriers with strangles, and so there's a lot going on with strangles. I think a lot of these outbreaks may be due to asymptomatic shedders on farms that are shedding shedding the, the bacteria and causing reoccurring outbreaks on farms. We know that occurs. Um, we know that there are limitations with strangles as far as controlling the disease adequately with vaccination. Um, so I. As I think about strangles and your question about strangles and flu and herpes 1 and herpes 4, it, it brings me back to the thought of 
one of the reasons we initiated this study was to get rapid and accurate diagnostics to the veterinarians so they could have information to handle those cases. And I can remember back in the day when we used to think, well, it doesn't really matter what it is, you're going to treat them all the same anyway. But I think we're now we're, we're really rethinking that and we're realizing how important it is to know what pathogen we're dealing with. Because if we know it strangles, as you just alluded to, um, we know that we may, after the disease has ran its course, we may need to be checking for asymptomatic carriers in, in, in that, on that premises. We know that we have some limitations with being able to control the disease adequately with vaccination. Another thing, if we know we know it strangles, strangles are a little different from from the viruses than the fact that clinical cases generally don't start shedding bacteria for 24 to 48 hours after they spike the fever. So if we know it strangles, we can start checking horses twice a day, uh, checking uh, rectal temperatures and monitoring. And if a horse spikes a fever, we isolate that horse immediately. Uh, there's a pretty good chance that horse is not shedding yet. Um, so it, it helps controlling in that uh, controlling the disease in that situation. Different from herpes virus one and four. Again, herpes virus one, if we know it's that, we know it's probably gonna be self-limiting, providing we don't have any, I'm talking about respiratory disease, not neurological disease. <clears throat> As you alluded to, none of the vaccines have a claim against neurological disease. And uh, so, Providing us just respiratory disease, herpes one will be pretty much self-limiting and uh, probably not really severe in nature. Herpes virus four, uh, we see it more frequently and a little more severe uh, clinical presentation. Herpes virus one, but we already talked about the vaccination and need the vaccination, but yet also recognizing the limitations of vaccination. And then with flu, uh, so if we know it's flu, then we know that we may be able to to go in there and, and, and help uh, with this outbreak situation. Um, we may want to think about vaccinating with the international modified live Fluenberg vaccine to try to help shut that down. So if we know what pathogen we're dealing with in a very timely fashion, it can kind of help us plan what we want to do or what we might think about doing and, and notify. And I think the owners would like to know. They want to know what's going on. What is this? Now, in some cases, we don't know what it is. And the other really interesting thing that we're doing with this biosurveillance study is we're taking these samples that are negative for all these other pathogens and we're going through a process where we're trying to identify uh, maybe some new respiratory pathogens in the equine world that we did not know about previously. So that's down the road a ways looking into the future or something that maybe uh, we will come up with a new possibility of maybe come up with some new pathogens from this study. Well, that's, that's exciting news. Um, I guess the only other question I'd like to go back and, and kind of reiterate, how does a veterinarian or a vet practice get involved in this biosurveillance program? Primarily through their uh, Merck Animal Health equine rep, or they can contact one of our equine, Merck Animal Health equine veterinary professional services veterinarians, and we'll be happy to discuss you know, the study and and what, what uh, enrollment involves and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so that would be the place to, to go with that. Um, you know, if you don't mind, Kim, I'd like to just, I'm glad you mentioned the Dr. Nat White and the Equine Disease Communication Center because that's, um, I would like to applaud uh, the efforts that have been done with that website. 
Uh, that's been very valuable information to veterinarians and to horse owners. And for your listeners, that I don't know if you've covered any of that in any of your previous episodes, but uh, for your listeners that have not checked out that website, the equinediseasecc.org, I would sure encourage them to do that. It's a, it's a great website. Uh, it's much like the CDC does with human disease reporting. Uh, it provides continual updates on disease outbreaks and, and a lot of information there regarding specific diseases, biosecurity measures, and other resources. So it's a really good website. We report our findings to the EDPCC and they put it on their website. We do that once every two weeks. We have, however, um, most recently, Included in our in the lab results and back to the veterinarian, we've asked them to please report cases that they identify in their practice through our biosurveillance program. We asked them if they would to please also report those cases uh, through EDCC so that those cases can be on the website and those cases can come out as disease alerts. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I agree with you in applauding Dr. White for fighting to get that up and rolling. And we we report on that a lot on equi-management, um, and I think uh, the industry certainly appreciates that. So that's uh, also a great service. And uh, is there anything else that we need to talk about with this program? I don't think so, Kim. I mean, there's other, we're still, like I said, doing a lot. We'll be, you know, we're hoping to come out uh, later with more information about the rhinitis A and B that we've been working, you know, that we've been uh, capturing items from. Most of those, essentially all of those, have been equine rhinitis B that we've identified, but we realize that equine rhinitis A is not always readily um, able to be obtained from nasal swab. Uh, we're hoping down the road to be able to come out with more information about equine herpes virus 2 and equine herpes virus 5. Gamma herpes viruses, uh, but you know, I think that to me, the, the big there's a lot of big things about this this biosurveillance study. It's been one of the most rewarding things that I've ever been that I have been involved in in my professional career. It's really been enlightening and rewarding to be part of the study, and and thank all the practitioners that are participating in the study. I think Dr. Pastrella and, and Samantha Barnum at the lab there at UC Davis, and thank them all the tech service, professional services vets and Merck for all their help. But, you know, I think it's it's just, it, it's really opened our eyes and, and, and uh, reiterated the fact that infectious self-respiratory disease is a frequent disease of horses. Uh, we do see it. It, it. We see it a lot. It's helped us identify what the most common pathogens are and hopefully help veterinarians and horse owners be able to, to manage those outbreaks in a better, in a better way through biosecurity and to vaccination, and I think numerous outbreaks really reinforces the need for better vaccination programs and biosecurity practices. And to me, that's kind of a take-home message. Well, that's certainly an important take-home message, and we do appreciate uh, Merck uh, not only supporting this biosurveillance program for respiratory diseases, but for sharing the information that you've learned from this with, uh, with all veterinarians. So on that note, I'm going to thank you, Dr. Burnett, for joining us today on Equimanagement's Disease Du Jour. And I would like to thank our listeners for joining us on this podcast. You can hear previous and future podcasts of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And we hope you will join us in the future for another episode of Disease Du Jour.
This episode of Disease Du Jour is brought to you by equinevetedu.com, a free online educational platform for veterinarians, vet students, and vet techs, brought to you by Equimanagement. Visit equinevetedu.com for free race-approved CE and courses on topics of current interest.